going to be talking today about playing the game with greatness and grace. If you have your Bibles, you may want to follow along, and some of the passages we'll be looking at this morning as well. I'd like to pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. It is holy, it is powerful, it's a word from you. It is timeless. It speaks to our needs and our circumstances of life. It encourages, it convicts, it instructs, it gives us hope. And Father, I pray that you would do all of those things as we listen to you this morning. Amen. There is something about athletic excellence that inspires us. You know, when I think about playing a game with greatness and grace, or I think about athletic excellence, I think about things like the Olympics. And they're coming up here uh, this next year in February, and we're going to be watching uh, Lindsey Vaughn, for example. Uh, we're going to be watching her go for the gold in her sport. And when you think about skiers, I mean, it's just incredible the speed that they go down that hill and trying to hold the line or the edge as they go through the gates. She's a four-time World Cup champion from Minnesota. Or I think of an athlete like Adrian Peterson, who last season had this remarkable year in which he came back from an ACL injury to rush for more than 2,000 yards, almost broke the record for a single season. Or I think of Maya Moore. Uh, we, we're watching her right now as the Lynx are going for another world championship. And Maya is not only a great athlete, she's a great person. She's a sister in Christ who loves the Lord and has uh, used the opportunity she's had to talk about Christ. But I love watching her play or making a three-point shot or a stop on defense. And I think of Peyton Manning, who uh, this year is just having a phenomenal year again. Uh, you know, as he came back from a, a neck injury and surgery on his neck, people had doubts, would he be able to play the game at a high level again? And watching him these last few weeks is kind of like watching a surgeon. I mean, he's just so precise on his passing and picking apart the defenses, and it's just a joy to watch him play. If I had to make an observation about athletes like this, is that the great ones make it look easy, don't they? I mean, it's just amazing. The great ones make it look so easy. You wonder why others can't do it at that same level or ability. And it always astounds me that even at the professional level, there's those few that rise to the top in their support in the way that they are able to play the game. They're gifted athletes, but they also work incredibly hard at developing their gifts. And the other thing I notice about them is that they make everyone around them better. They raise the bar. They raise the level of competition. They raise the level of work or excellence that others put in. And they help their team, those that are in team sports, to succeed as well. Well, the challenge for us as Christians, then, is to live just like that. It's to live our life with greatness and grace. Doing our all for the glory of God, encouraging the people around us, making life better, if you will, for everyone else. It's to live in such a way that others can see Jesus in us. They can see his transformation taking place in our heart, in our life, in our attitude and actions. So how do we do that? Well, we're going to look at four things today that can help us to live that way, to play the game with greatness and grace. 
Number one, we are to play with gratitude. Play with gratitude. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18, Paul said this. He said, Be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks always. Be a thankful person. That's the message. That's what the Bible talks about. For those of us who have come to know Christ, that we should be the most grateful people of anyone. I mean, do you realize how much we have been given by God? If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that we were chosen in God before the creation of the world. I mean, wrap your mind around that. Chosen by God before the world was even created, that we should become part of his family. That God knew us. He made you and me. He created us that one day we would know him and again be adopted into his family. We've been forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. We have been redeemed from the slave market of sin where we were under bondage to Satan and to our sins and he has set us free and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Christ lives in us. We have been given eternal life and in Christ we have abundant life. We have fellowship with God and we have fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We have the privilege of prayer, and we have seen answers to prayer. We've been given the Word of God so that we might know Him or claim His promises or share that Word with others. We have the mind of Christ, and we have been given a future hope that we can hardly even imagine all that's going to take place for us. We have every reason to be thankful, and yet it is still a rare quality among people to be grateful. In Luke chapter 17, there's a story where Jesus was traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He was going through Samaria, and on the way he met ten men who had leprosy. And the men stood at a distance, and they called out to him, and they said, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They were asking Jesus to heal them of their leprosy. And Jesus did have mercy on them. He healed them. He sent them to the priest to show that they had been healed. Ten men were healed, but only one came back to thank him. In one of the most famous speeches ever made in sports, it was on the day when Lou Gehrig was standing to thank the Yankee fans for their support all through the years. This man, who generally was kind of a silent Yankee first baseman, stood at the microphone at the end of his fabulous career. And he was suffering from a horrible disease that would take his life in a matter of months. And he took time that day to thank the vendors and the ticket takers and the workers who never got the applause but who made his job possible. And he said those words that echo still, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That's pretty amazing. To know that you have ALS, to know that this disease is going to take your life and to be able to stand there and say, I was blessed to play this game. 
I think the reason his speech is remembered is because it runs counter to what the world would say or feel. I mean, it would think you would be, you know, angry or upset or wanting to blame others or feel like you had gotten a raw deal somehow. But Lou Gehrig chose to focus on what he had been given, not what had been lost. He chose to be thankful and not bitter. And that takes great courage and character. Is that the way that we live? Do we find our lives marked by thankfulness? Do we rejoice always? Do we pray continually? Do we give thanks in all circumstances? You know, when I say that, I'm speaking to myself too because there are times when I can find myself grumbling or complaining about things when it doesn't go exactly as I want. And I look at this passage and I think, God, I want to be like that. I want to play the game with gratitude, always. Secondly, we are to play with purpose. Do you know your calling? And are you doing what God wants you to do? Because we experience the greatest joy in life when we use our gifts for something greater than ourselves. If life is all about me, then we're living in a very small world, aren't we? If it's all about us and about our needs and, you know, keeping us happy and everything, then the world's a pretty tiny place. God invites us to join with Him in His mission, to be part of what He's doing that's happening all around the world. That's why we come together to worship. It's why we want to be growing in our relationship with Him and serving and sharing our faith and giving and going and multiplying into the lives of others. Because when we do that, when we use our gifts to bless others, we are also blessed in return. Paul lived like that. He knew he had been chosen by God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and he worked hard at that, and his eyes were on the goal. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, he described himself in this way. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I want to know Christ. I want to know him more deeply, more intimately. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be part of what God's doing in this world. And not only do I want to share in his sufferings, I want to share in his resurrection. And I want to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. In other words, God had called Paul for a purpose, to join with him in his mission. And Paul said, I want to embrace that calling. I want to live my life in a way that honors God and so that others might come to know him too. And I'm pressing on toward that goal every day to win the prize, to look forward to what God has in store for me in the future. Paul knew his calling, and he labored with all his might to bring the gospel to those who did not know Christ. William Carey 
knew his calling too. William Carey is called the founder of the modern missions movement. And in many ways, he might have seemed like an unlikely person to do that. Some people thought he was a nut. I mean, he was just a shoemaker after all. And he wasn't a very good shoemaker at that. But in the evenings after work, he studied Greek and Hebrew, and he studied the Bible. He also read books like Captain Cook's Voyages to expand his horizons of what the world was like because he had never left the small English country village that he grew up in. Some people said his time would have been better spent if he had gotten a second job to support his growing family. But this young man's passion wasn't a curious, self-satisfying hobby. Early in life, he had become concerned about the millions of unbelievers outside of Europe. And he was trying to figure out what could be done to bring them the gospel. And with God's help, he slowly figured it out. He ended up going to India to serve as the first Protestant missionary in the modern era. And his passion, his work, inspired a generation of men and women like Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma, or Hudson Taylor, who went to China, and David Livingston, who went to Africa, who followed his example and took up the cause of missions as well. And because one impoverished shoemaker named William Carey followed God's call on his life, millions today around the world who had no access to the gospel now know Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable story of a young man who chose to follow God's call on his life. What is your mission? What is it that God wants you to do? You know, one way to identify what may be our particular calling is to ask the question, what is it that troubles you? When you look at the needs in a community or you look at the people around you, what is it that, that you see that maybe somebody else doesn't see in quite the same way? When you think about how could you help to meet that need? I mean, that's why some people, they look at what's going on in the world today and they are burdened by the orphans that are in our world. Or they're burdened about the issue of world hunger or AIDS or sex trafficking or battered women and the plight that they have. There are people who look at the world, though, just like William Carey, and they see the lost people, and they go, what can we do to bring the gospel to those who have never heard it before? Some are impressed by the need for solid biblical teaching. We have so many churches where the Word of God is not taught with authority. And that burden is on their heart to say, I want to help meet that need. Or there are those that are burdened for making disciples. And it's not a, you know, one or the other or exclusive here. But what I'm saying is that there's a way in which God works and he puts those burdens on our heart. And we look at the world around us and we see needs and we go, you know, something's got to be done about that. What is it that God has put on your heart? What would keep you awake at night? What is it that you would pray about or desire to see happen for the sake of Christ? Go for it. Get involved and use your gifts in that area of ministry. Thirdly, play to win. What do I mean by that? I mean, give God your best. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. 
Paul writes here, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now that's pretty cool what he's saying there. I mean that we as Christians should be giving our very best for the Lord. You know, you think of an athlete, when they're competing for a prize, they go into strict training. That requires discipline. And just like that, we should discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. They work hard to be the best that they can be. We should work hard in our faith to be growing in Christ. And it also takes focus. It takes knowing what it is God wants us to do or what it is that we need to do to keep growing in our faith. Athletes have a goal in mind, and as Christians, we should have a goal in mind to become more and more like Jesus or to serve him in the area of ministry that he's given to us. I showed a picture earlier of Maya Moore uh, playing basketball, and I heard an interview with her this past week where they were talking about the Lynx going for another uh, championship in the WNBA. And in that interview, she was sharing how everybody on the team is very focused on what they need to do. They know what it's like to win. They did that two years ago. They know what it's like to lose. That happened last year, and they didn't like the taste of that. And so they all are focused in on what they need to do to help the team win. Their eyes are on the prize. And Paul says here, you know, that when an athlete does it, that's a good thing for an athlete to do, but the prize that they win is only for this life. It is temporary. But the prize that we are striving for, the goal that we have, is eternal. And the things that we do for Christ will last forever. So run to win. Run in such a way as to get the prize. And finally, be the kind of person people want to sit next to. When you play the game, play it with grace and be that kind of player that people want to sit next to. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said this. He said, For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. But no, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul felt so undeserving because of the way that he started out persecuting these new believers, rounding them up, having them thrown into jail. He stood in agreement when Stephen was stoned to death and Paul felt so undeserving. And by God's grace, God called him, changed his life, turned him around and used him to be this great apostle to the gentiles paul worked hard he was honest about that he worked very hard at his faith and yet paul would say that any success he experienced was only by the grace of god you know the players that we admire most 
are those who are humble and gracious. They've learned how to win with grace. They give credit to others. They give credit to God, to their teammates. They give credit to coaches or their parents who supported them all along the way. They've also learned how to lose with grace. And when they lose, there's no excuses. There's no blaming others. There's no self-pity. But there's also no self-condemnation. Sometimes the other athlete just played better. And that's not a shame on you. That's just the way it is in competition and sports. There are going to be games when you win and times when you lose. And nobody likes to lose. But when you do, lose with grace. Lose with grace. The best athletes, even, are humble and forgiving. And that's the way God wants us to live our life. You know, one of the greatest examples of humility and forgiveness comes from an area that we might not think about. It comes from the area of American politics. Yes, it's a politician that I'm going to talk about as an example of humility and grace. It's the story of Abraham Lincoln. In the book, Team of Rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin tells how Abraham Lincoln placed in his cabinet the greatest rivals to his presidency. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Nobody else did that. When he became president, he surrounded himself with people who had both been for him and against him in his cabinet. And he brought them together in probably the most crucial time in our nation's history when we were being divided by a civil war. When someone asked Lincoln why he would make such an unusual move, his response was that he would never dream of depriving the country of their leadership when it needed them most. And perhaps the greatest story of his grace and winning involves his relationship with Edwin Stanton. In 1854, Abraham Lincoln was working as a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois. And he was invited to collaborate with one of the most prestigious law firms in the country that was based in Washington, D.C. The lawsuit was going to be held in Chicago, and what Lincoln didn't know was the only reason they wanted him to be part of this case was they thought that having an Illinois lawyer would help ingratiate them with the judge. So they never consulted him, they never Listen to his ideas. You know, Lincoln spent the whole summer, this would be the most important case he would ever work on. He was studying. He was prepared. He was excited to meet with them. And the star attorney for the high-powered firm in Washington was a brilliant legal mind named Edwin Stanton. He could be brusque and condescending. Frederick Douglass said about him that politeness was not one of his weaknesses. Lincoln, on the other hand, was keenly aware of his homely appearance and his uneducated background. Once, when he was debating a political opponent who charged him with being two-faced during a campaign, Lincoln responded, Really? If I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> and Stanton quickly decided he had no use for Lincoln. He didn't look at his briefs. He answered none of his letters. He would not confer with him, would not eat with him, would not plot strategy with him. At one point, Lincoln heard Stanton say to his colleague, where did that long-armed creature come from? And what can he expect to do in this case? His snubs grew so severe that Lincoln withdrew from the case because he would not be allowed to contribute. 
Well, fast forward five years from that point in history. Abraham Lincoln, the ill-dressed, unkempt, long-armed local lawyer, is now President of the United States. He's the winner, and Edwin Stanton is the loser. Edwin Stanton is the outgoing Attorney General. His party lost and losing has not made him more gracious toward Lincoln. Twice in letters to friends, he referred to Lincoln as an imbecile. In communicating with the Union General George McClellan, he called Lincoln the original guerrilla. Stanton's own partner said that there was probably no man in the country towards whom Lincoln had reason to feel so much personal resentment. But the guerrilla needed someone to run the War Department. The war was going badly, and advisors said that Edwin Stanton was the best man for the job. So Lincoln said to a mutual acquaintance, I have made up my mind to sit down on all my pride. It may be a portion of my self-respect, and I will appoint him to the place. And how Lincoln treated Stanton is Civil War history. When Stanton joined the cabinet, Lincoln took him into his council. He trusted him, he confided in him, and in time, their respect for each other grew, and they became good friends. Stanton responded with unfailing loyalty and affection. A few years into the war, Stanton met his ex-partner at the law firm, George Harding. And George Harding had praised a recent state paper and suggested that Stanton had been the real author. Not a word, Stanton said. Lincoln wrote it, every word of it. No men were ever so deceived about a man as we were. And Harding later wrote that never afterwards would any disparagement of Lincoln be tolerated by Stanton or members of his family. And on the morning of April 14, 1865, when Abraham Lincoln died, those famous words were spoken. In fact, there is no more famous words that were ever spoken at the death of a president than what was said that morning. Now he belongs to the ages. And those words were spoken by Edwin Stanton. Lincoln knew how to live with greatness and grace. He was humble and forgiving in his relationships, and God used him in a powerful way in our nation's history. Oh, how we need that kind of leadership today. What kind of player are you? What kind of player am I? Do we play this game? Do we live our life with gratitude for all that God has given to us? Do we play with purpose, knowing our calling and giving God our very best? Do we play to win? Do we follow God's leading in our life? And are we the kind of person that people want to sit next to? That people enjoy being around because of the grace that God has given to you and me. Let's pray. Father, it's a powerful thing that we have been asked to do. To live that way with greatness and grace is humbling. We cannot do that on our own. It's only Christ in us that can change us and make us to be that kind of person who is forgiving, who is gracious, who is encouraging, supportive of others, who wants the best for them 
and who wants the best most of all for you. Father, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for the times when we've tried to make us look better than somebody else or we have exaggerated or even lied perhaps about things in our life. And Father, help us to humble ourselves, to allow your Holy Spirit to do its work in us and to be the kind of people who live with greatness and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.